You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. Did you know that as of 2021, just last year, or rather two years ago, 324 million people in the United States are using dating apps. 324 million people. About 75% of those 324 million are using those apps hoping for some type of commitment from the initial relationship introduction. About 42% of the people using dating apps today are hoping that that introduction will not just lead to commitment, but it'll lead to actual marriage, that people would be married. It would be married together. About 50% of those people who use dating apps say it's easy to find people with shared hobbies. Some of you know this. Numbers of you have and continue to use dating apps And you know what this is like when you use a dating app is that difficulty of trying to figure out how do you introduce yourself? What what picture do you post? What description do you give? It's difficult, right? Because in some sense, like if it's too good, it's really like false advertising. Yeah, I only looked this good like one time last year in our friend's wedding. I was like, that's it. This is my, my, my fellow employees would be shocked to see me look like this. And this description I give of myself, well, this description is what I hope one day to be. Like maybe after the next 10 years of New Year's resolutions, I, I finally keep them. And if you get with me, you might get that. But there's the reality. But this is oftentimes often what it's like when people get to know churches. When they sort of, if you will, Date churches, because honestly, that's how a lot of people, including many of you, first get to know churches. You date them online. You check out their social media apps. You take a look at their pictures. You learn of their leaders. You maybe look at some of their pictures, and then you begin to listen to some of their sermons. And if there's enough interest, enough affinity, enough commonality, you then decide to do the remarkable, show up and meet in person. Some of you are here today as your first Sunday. Some of you are here for your second date, your third date. Some of us have been dating together for quite a while. And the question is, when you get to meet Grace Church, how will you have found it? Well, we hope that you'd find it to be open, sincere, thoughtful, joyful, engaging, warm, energetic, kind. As to what we believe and what we're committed about, we hope that you see that we're passionate about worship. And not just simply music as worship, we mean all of life as worship. And in the service, we mean all of it as being worship. The great reformer Martin Luther said, the highest form of worship is the preaching of the word of God. We're committed and passionate about discipleship and community and outreach and being accountable and convictional. We actually have beliefs and we intend to stick to them no matter how unpopular it is out there to have them. 
We want to be Christ-centered and unapologetic and evangelistic and forgiving to one another. All this comes from and starts with the gospel. Now, as a summary of the gospel, this sometimes can be a term that people use within Christian communities, but we don't necessarily stop and define. What do we mean when we say the gospel? Well, by term, the very word gospel means good news. Good news about what? Good news that it's colder than usual and you get to wear that down jacket you've only worn once last year? Good news that God loves you? What is the good news? By summary, let me give you this. The good news is that the one and only God who was holy made us in his image to know him. But we sinned and cut ourselves off from him. In his great love, God became a man in Jesus, lived a perfect life and died on the cross, therefore fulfilling the law himself and taking on himself the punishment for the sins of all those who would ever turn and trust in him. He rose again from the dead, showing that God accepted Christ's sacrifice and that God's wrath against us has been exhausted. He now calls us to repent of our sins and to trust in Christ alone for our forgiveness. If we repent of our sins and trust in Christ, we have a new life, an eternal life with God. Friends, that's the gospel. But the title of our message today is a gospel-centered life. To see that by biographical example, open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, as we turn and read the letters of a man who not only understood the gospel as I just read it to you, but also his entire life was reoriented, completely affected because of it. Now, if you're new to the Bible, let me just tell you a little bit about the book of Philippians. Uh, Philippians is a letter from a man named Paul, known as the Apostle Paul, writing to a church in the city of Philippi, like you have Miami, the Miamians, you could say, there's the Philippi, the Philippians, and he's writing from jail. He's been arrested for being a Christian, for preaching, ironically, the gospel. And he's still excited about it. He feels, still finds great joy in it. And in Philippians chapter 3, which is going to be our text today, specifically as we kind of parachute in, he's been writing them this letter talking about what it means to have joy in Christ, no matter the circumstances. And just to kind of get a running start here, look with me at Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Our primary text will be verses 7 to 11, but look at verse 1 with me. Paul says of Philippians, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Verse seven. But whatever gain I had, 
I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. We'll stop there. And what's happening here is that Paul is essentially giving an impressive resume. Now, most of you are not Jewish. Most of you don't understand what's going on in this text. So let me just, if I can, give a brief summary of it. Paul in verses 5 and 6 basically is sort of profiling why he is a stud in the Jewish context. The family he's from, all the religious accolades he's accomplished, how good he has been in relationship to the law, supposedly, what it is he's done, what it is he knows. I mean, honestly, this is a resume that any Jewish person at the time would say, wow, I'm not just impressing people around me, I'm impressing God who created me. And yet, he says in verse 8, he counts them as rubbish. Now, this is not Paul getting all British on us. Right? I mean, think of the term rubbish. Who uses that, right? I mean, a good Brit would, good Australian perhaps would, but, you know, you got to put on the accent. Oh, it's just rubbish. What is he talking about here? This term rubbish is an English translation of a Greek word that Paul is writing. All of the New Testament, when it was originally written, was written in Greek. And when he's writing it, he's writing a word that basically says, it's nothing. In fact, by definition, the very term has sometimes been associated with the word trash, or even worse, by association to imagery, dung, excrement human waste. Paul says, you take everything good that I've ever done, everything I've ever accomplished, anyone that I ever know, anything that you put on my LinkedIn profile and lay it out. And he goes, you know what I think of that? It's trash. It's nothing. Now that should concern a number of people in this room. Why? Well, consider the following. If I was asked you the question, Why do you think, at the end of your life, God who created you would let you into heaven? What would you say? What would you, how would you answer that question? I'm confident that there's more than just one person here that would give some form of an answer that says and sounds like the following. Well, I hope that God would have let me into heaven because of some of the things that I've done. Try to be good here. Go to church here. I'll be the first to admit I've never been perfect in that area, but I've tried pretty hard. Furthermore, I'm happy to say, in all humility, of course, I'm happy to say, I know by reflection of my own desires of what I could have done and by comparison with what others have actually done, I've not done some of those bad things. I'm kind of hoping God will sort of like weigh it all out and he'll say, you know what? Not bad. Not bad. Fairly impressive. You know what? Come on it. Come on it. Paul says that way of thinking will get you 
nowhere. It got him nowhere. In fact, that way of thinking, that way of living is nothing more than a pile of trash. God, here's my trash. So what's he talking about here? Well, what he's talking about here is something needs to be understood sort of in accounting language. You've heard the term CPA, stands for Certified Public Accountant. Well, Paul is essentially being a CBA, a Certified Biblical Accountant. This is biblical economics, biblical mathematics. If you're taking notes this morning, we want to see what Paul sees and he wants the Philippians to learn that we still need to learn today and live in light of what we've learned. It's about investing. Paul basically takes all of the inventory of his life, all the portfolio of what he's invested in. He's like, you know what? I'm cashing all out of this stock. No more Tesla, no more Google, no more Amazon. I put everything in this stock instead. My entire future is in this one stock. What does he do? Well, that takes us to our lesson here. Four dividends from fully investing in Christ, because that's exactly where he invests. He says in verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And then he gets to where he invests. Number one, the first dividend from fully investing in Christ is relationship with Christ. What do you get if you invest fully in Christ? If you repent and give your life to Christ. He says that in verse 8. Look at what he says in verse 8. He says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth, the greater worth, the greater value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. This phrase, knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, is a personal knowledge. Now, to know God, just to be very clear, this was a significant text. And for those of you who come from a Hebrew Jewish background, you know this, the most significant text you could sort of say in the Jewish scriptures would be Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. It's this term Shema in Hebrew. It's the word hear. Hear, O Israel. What's what it means to know and to hear is the same idea. It's not just to have an awareness of, it's to have a relationship with. To know Christ Jesus, my Lord, means to have an understanding of who he is and an intimate relationship with him. It's the experience of being loved by him and loving him in return. It's the only form of knowledge worth having which is radical in comparison to that time having pride in everything that you would know. There are some people here today who are remarkably educated. There are some people here who have degrees and have studied in subjects that honestly the rest of us would probably tap out a paragraph into them explaining what they do and what, they, what they're about. And the rest of us are just going to include, dude, you were like super smart. I mean like super duper smart. I thank God there's people like you. Paul says, in a curiously disorienting way, I would rather know nothing in comparison to knowing Christ. He's not talking simply about an intellect of who Jesus is, as if he could pass a quiz of knowledge about him. He's talking about a relationship with Christ. 
He would later say in Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. To know Christ means to have access to those treasures. Paul knew that the amazing Savior loved him. That's why he says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, that he loved me and gave himself up for me. Friend, just think about that. For God to love you, for God's son to love you and give himself up for you? You're like trying to find your hope in some relationship outside of God. And it will never deliver like God delivers in his son. Look again what it says in verse 10 of Philippians chapter 3. Look what he says here. That I may know him. This desire by Paul to know him. It reminds me of what Moses said in, to the Lord in Exodus 33, verse 13. If I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Paul knows he has favor in God's sight because he knows Christ. What are the implications of this? Well, there's a lot, but let me just give you a couple here. Your identity and your security are in Christ. Why is that so important if you're going to profess to be a follower of Christ? Because honestly, this world at large, and this city in particular, tell you to find your identity in everything else. Find your identity in your looks. Oh, dear. Somebody should tell you the truth. Those things that you're trying to spend all your time and energy curating and protecting will go away. Beauty is fleeting, the Bible says. And it's such a subjective reference point to begin with. Oh, that, that work accomplishment, that educational benchmark, that relationship you want to secure. Do you know what often happens on the other side of seemingly securing those things that give you your identity and your security? You find out they don't actually last. Only Christ's love for you lasts. To be loved by the God of the universe who sent his son for you, his son who gave himself up for you, to be loved by him and have your identity to be in Christ. Do you know the most common description in all of the New Testament of a Christian, what it says? It's two words. And they're profound. In Christ. That is the most common way to refer to a Christian in the scriptures. Someone who is in Christ. The challenge for you and I as Christians is to know that positionally, but practically still try to find our identity and security in something else other than in Christ. The second dividend that comes from investing in Christ, Paul says, is not just the relationship with Christ, it's also, secondly, perfection of Christ. Perfection of Christ. Look at what he says in verse nine as he's talking about this. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteous from God that depends on faith. Did you ever get any medals when you were a kid for something you did? Medals, ribbons, printed certificates. Yeah, we give those out a lot today. You just have to show up to school and you can get one of those things. I mean, literally, you show up to school enough and they give you like an attendance award. You're like, I just was here. I didn't do anything. I wasn't even good at what I did. I might have been respectful. Just you being here gets an attendance award. You play soccer, you can get a trophy. And you don't have to win sometimes. You just get like a participation trophy. 
You're like, you are so successful at putting your clothes on and having your mom and dad drive you here and getting on the field, even though you ran the opposite direction your team was going and you don't say anything the coach was yelling at you, we're so proud of you. Here's your trophy and here's a little juice box. It just continues to go this way, right? I mean, just on and on it goes. Now, let me just be honest. As a kid, I loved all those things, right? I mean, who kid does not? You're like, blue ribbon for being the most improved player, which basically means at the beginning of the season, you were horrible. <laughs> at the end of the season, you were a little less horrible. But you pretty much feel like you end the season like, I mean, I'm Lionel Messi. I feel like I'm just, I'm like one of the greats out here. Like, no, you're just not as bad as when you first started. And, you know, the truth is, a lot of you had those things, but you've got rid of them. Some of you have kept them. My wife makes fun of me to this day. We have this ongoing debate in our marriage. I have a little wicker basket-style suitcase from my mom gave it to me. And it's got a collection of some of those ribbons and medals. Not because every now and then I need a self-esteem boost. Like, I am someone special. When I was six, I could be reminded of that. No, I keep it for posterity's sake from my great-great-grandkids who will not care. But I tell myself they will care. My wife right now, on behalf of my future grandchildren, is telling me they don't care. And she keeps trying to throw it away, but I won't let her throw it away. We have it somewhere in her house. I don't even know where it's at in my house. Somewhere in her house. I told her you cannot get rid of this. I want you to imagine all of a lifetime saying the right thing, doing the right thing, all these trophies, all these accomplishments, all these job well done, encouragement. Paul says, put all that, grab as much of that as you can in your arms. I want you to walk over to a trash can. I want you to dump it. I want you to dump it. It's all trash. He goes, if you invest in Christ, here's what you get. You get the righteous credit that only the Son of God accomplished. You get declared perfectly righteous as if you've never had a bad thought, never been rebellious, never spoken an unkind word, never had a lustful look, never had a greedy motive, never had a rude action, never been unkind to anybody in traffic. Now we're preaching. Never in any way been impatient always and only forever obeyed every command of God perfectly? Friend, it is all yours for the taking when you're in Christ, when your faith is in Christ. The full perfection of Christ is given to you. Many people today are mourning the loss of their investments that they have been making for decades for their retirement, their future income. And I don't mean to make light of that at all. That it can be sincerely a financial tragedy for many people. But what's wrong is to make your total life investment into an area that's never going to return on it. And to be told that ahead of time and still keep investing in it. If I told you there was a stock that might appear to give an immediate return the next three years, the next five years, but by the end of the time, you will lose all of your money 
And you knowing that and have been told that repeatedly and been proven that by illustration of other people who invested in that stock and yet you keep investing in the stock, what would we call you? Stupid. <laughs> Foolish. You're not ignorant. You're not ignorant. You know. You've been told. But you keep choosing to invest in that stock. Friends, this is what you and I would do if we kept investing in something other than Christ. We would be foolish. And Paul says here in verse 9 of what he's saying is like, I don't invest there at all. Ah, my investment, this righteousness is not of my own that comes from the law, meaning by obeying the word of God, but that what comes through faith in Christ, the righteous from God that depends on faith. Friends, it's a, it's a miracle of salvation that all God is asking of you is faith. Fully surrendered, all committed, leaning back and fully committed in faith. And in exchange for that, he gives you everything in Christ. You are adopted, declared righteous, pardoned, and dwelt the Holy Spirit, given a new name, a new creature in Christ, you have a purpose and a promise. This is radical. The implication for this, you can rest in Christ's righteousness, not your own. You can rest in Christ's righteousness, not your own. Why is this important? Because it's a common mistake for us who are Christians to think, hey, if we read our Bibles enough, if we pray enough, we forgive enough, if we act well enough, if we volunteer enough, God will be happy he saved us and he can tell we're thankful and we can kind of pay him back. You understand, you can't pay God back. Your righteousness was and always will be because of the perfect righteousness of Christ credited to you. And that was only through faith. And ironically, Ephesians chapter two tells us <laughs> even faith is a gift. You're like, what? Why am I being credited for anything? I did nothing. The only thing I provided to my salvation was my sin. That's my only contribution to my salvation is my sin. And everything else is the gift of God. So that he alone might get the glory. The third dividend, if your life is fully invested in Christ, the third dividend of return of what you get is a life of Christ. Now this gets us into the deep end of the Christian life that a lot of people are not aware of. But track with me here because I do not want you to miss this. Verse 10. Paul says, that I may know, he's going from the righteous that depends on God through faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. I'm like, okay, that sounds good. Look at this one. And may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Whoa. Wait, what? I like the good part. I was hoping when I give my life to Christ, happy, fulfilled, promised and pledged, no suffering, no discomfort, no disease, no discouragement. That's not what Paul says. Paul knew he had no power in himself to overcome sin and honor the Lord. This is why, for example, he writes in Romans chapter 7, verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. 
but because Paul had put his trust in Christ and his life and therefore had his righteous mentioned, as it says here in verse 9, Paul also knew the Holy Spirit living inside of him. But he also talks about what's happening here. He has the power of his resurrection inside of him, but it talks about sharing in his sufferings. What's he talking about here? This idea of share is a translation of the word from in the Greek called koinonia. It means the word fellowship. Fellowship. Here's something bizarre that perhaps you as a Christian ever thought about. Do you know that there are odd times in the Christian life where you get to have fellowship, intimacy with Christ when you are in seasons of suffering? Ironically, we're tempted in the flesh to think that's when God is furthest from us. Otherwise, why would we be going through this? But that can be when God is closest to us. Why would I say that? How is that true? Well, first of all, the way that we see this idea of sharing in his sufferings being in Christ is, number one, we are reminded in suffering that suffering exists in a broken, fallen world. Do you understand when God created the world, he did not create it with all that pain and suffering that we see, the death and disaster and disease, that's not his design, but the evidence and the consequence from rebelling against him? He is aware of the consequence of sinful rebellion. And he identifies with us and our sufferings in that he sends his son who endured every form of suffering imaginable. He experienced it. That's why it says in Hebrews chapter 3 that he is like a sympathetic high priest. What a remarkable work of what Jesus has done for us in his life. We share in his sufferings in that, in our suffering, number one, we're reminded of the sufferings that God acknowledges and has provided an ultimate solution for in his son. That's a positional sharing of that suffering. But secondly, we share in the sufferings with Christ because in those experiences of suffering, we are drawn back to the Lord because we've run out of all of the resources. Sometimes the closest moments of fellowship a Christian can have with God are when they experience an intense season of suffering. Why? Because you know what suffering is? Suffering is a burner. It turns up the heat on your life and brings to the surface of your heart the impurities that are there, the inability to address it with no other solution than the Christian has been given than to turn back to God and say, God, save me. Help me. Strengthen me. Hear me. Intercede for me. Be gracious to me. Hear my cry. How many prayers in the Psalms have been cried out to God in this situation of suffering? And ironically, it is in that suffering that there is a sympathetic high priest, a corresponding intimacy with God. Paul is teaching through life and death, through health and through suffering, Christ has not abandoned you. Christ is present with you. And he understands that. What's the implication to this? Your suffering is not in vain. Your suffering is not in vain. God can redeem your suffering. 
and do a great work in your life as he was doing in Paul's life. Now, I remind you, where's Paul writing this letter from? Prison. Homeboy's in prison. I mean, sometimes, right, it's kind of hard to hear lessons from people like, yeah, I mean, it's nice to say you, know, don't, you handle suffering, but like, how have you ever suffered? Paul's like, you want me to go? You want to go? I mean, are you asking me? Or are you asking her? As we learned a couple weeks ago, I've been beaten, been stoned, been abandoned, been shipwrecked, left for dead several times. Oh, as I write to you now, I'm, I'm in jail for Jesus. Jail for Jesus, it's a new ministry I'm starting up. I don't get many people to sign up for it, though. Paul says, I know Christ in ways I never would have known apart from his sufferings that I share with him. Fourth dividend that's paid upon investing your life in Christ is eternal life with Christ. Look at verse 11. He continues, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This idea of resurrection from the dead is this eternal life with Christ. Eternal life with Christ, this reality that what we see is not all that there will be, that God will do a work not only in our life now, but in the one to come, and that there is an eternal life, a guarantee of a hope, that any means possible that Christ would do this work in his life. I want you to picture with me back to the beginning, talking about relationships. A young man finally meets a young woman. That seems like it's going well. She thinks it's time to finally introduce him to her parents. He wants to really impress the parents. He learns that the dad has worked for the Ford manufacturing company for his entire working career. He's like, okay. Dad's a Ford guy. I want to be a Ford guy. I want dad to like me so he can let me date his daughter. So what he does is he asks his friend, hey, can I borrow your F-150? I got to go pick her up for a date. I just want low-key, want to show up in my truck. You know, just out here, Ford. And so I go pick him up, pick her up. But, you know, I make it a point to kind of get outside and talk about it with the dad. He comes out and introduces himself to me. We're talking about it as if it's mine. Over time, we get close together, this girl and I, and so then as a result of that, it's Christmas time. Like, you know what? I want this guy to know I'm all in. I get him a tie. He works. He needs to wear a tie to work. I got him a, a truck tie, Ford tie. He's all in. He likes it. He thinks it's wonderful. Then it comes time for his birthday. He's like, I got to think about getting him a birthday present. So he gets him a new keychain for his car. He didn't drive a Ford truck, but he drives a Ford, so it's like, I'm going to get him a truck. I mean, a keychain for his car. I'm like, every time, whether this guy's getting dressed, this guy's driving to work, wherever he's driving, he's going to think about me like, you know what? I'm so glad my daughter's dating that guy. What a good guy. Finally, the daughter's brother pulls the boyfriend aside one day and says, hey, I should tell you something. I'm not sure if you understand what's happening around here, but our dad hates Ford. I was like, what? He's like, yeah, they let him off. They fired him early, so they didn't have to pay out his full pension. And now he's struggling that a company he gave his life to 
Now he resents for the rest of his life because they turned on him. And that young man is crushed thinking, what have I done? Imagine you thinking that what it takes to please God is to be good, to be kind, to get a jewelry, a cross, get your Bible, go to church, be nice to your coworkers with the intention to be able to impress God so God can like you. One of God's children that's adopted, another Christian comes along and says, just so you know, God counts all those things as rubbish and why he had to send his son to die. Because the Bible says, even your righteousness is, is like filthy rags to me. Your sin has tainted everything you've touched and it can never accomplish my holiness. Only Christ, my son, can offer you that hope and that forgiveness. But that hope is not just for here, it's for the life to come. And Paul says to be able to have eternal life with Christ. He's saying there in verse this attaining the resurrection from the dead. What's the implication? The implication is the best is yet to come. Do you understand, as provocative as this might be, God's desire for some of his children, Christians, is not to heal them, but to bring them home. Out of compassion and love, out of care for people that we care deeply about, we want nothing more than for God to answer our prayers for all their surgeries, for all their diseases, for all their medical treatment, for all their care. But do you understand We're praying that more for our sake than their sake. Because if they're in Christ, as Paul says early in Philippians chapter one, to die is gain. Why would somebody say that? They would say that because to be in Christ and having passed away is to have perfect peace, no more sin, no more suffering, no more disappointment, no more brokenness, perfect fellowship with God who created and perfect fellowship with his people whom he is redeeming throughout history. Do we grieve their losses? Unspeakably, yes. Do we mourn and miss them dearly? Unbelievably, yes. But Paul was clear in Philippians chapter 1 verse 21 as he's clear here. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Which is why he says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 11, by any means possible that I might attain the resurrection from the dead. For those of you who are not in Christ, I hope I've been clear to you at this point so far. Cash all your livestock out and invest in Christ. For those who are Christians, Consider some implications of living your life in light of the gospel. If you're in Christ, think with me. 
How does gaining Christ change everything now that you're in Christ? By being able to love others even when they don't love you. By having joy that's not tied to your circumstances or relationships. By having peace that cannot be shaken through death, disease, or disaster. By being patient with others and where they're at in their life as God is working in them as he's working in you. By being able to be kind to others as you speak words and commit acts of thoughtfulness to others. By being able to demonstrate goodness by caring for those in need, whether it's those providing a practical need or a humble word of correction. By being able to show faithfulness to God's word no matter what parents, children, spouses, friends, roommates, professors, neighbors, employers, or strangers say about you. By demonstrating gentleness and interacting with others and tending to build up, not tear down, to help, not to harm. By demonstrating self-control with our thoughts about others, our words about others, our own actions with ourselves, bringing our bodies under our submission to the glory of Christ. By being able to forgive others as God has forgiven us in Christ. By being able to be secure in who God has made you and where he has you, no matter where you otherwise might want to be. By encountering suffering and being reminded that Christ suffered for you. Why? So that you eventually will never suffer again. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Friends, this is the time to reorient your lives towards Christ. Anything else, anyone else, is rubbish. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. God draw you nearer to him through his word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.